Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Barent Newstraten. Good morning. The story that I would like to present to you this morning is one of enormous significance and it deals with the temptation in the wilderness. So I would invite you, and you'll need your Bible by the way, you're going to need your Bible, so don't think you just sit there and let it all happen. I'd like you to look up the verses because then they stay in your mind much better and we'll probably take it from the Gospel of Mark first, the first the very first chapter. By the way, it's good to see so many familiar faces. It's good to see new faces too. Happy to be here. And so it is, we start with the Gospel of Mark, and we'll start with verse 9 in the first chapter. Have you all got it? Good. Now it says here, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he, Jesus, saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 12. Immediately, he stresses the fact immediately, the Spirit drove him, Jesus, into the wilderness. This is the Judean wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beast and the angels ministered to him. And that's the whole account that you find in the Gospel of Mark. Now, now I would like you to go to the Gospel of Luke and I'm just going to compare the three synoptic Gospels about this event. By the way, if ever you want to get a hold, a handle on a particular occurrence of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, of course, you compare one Gospel with the other and note the different accounts and details as it comes to you. It says here in verse 1 of chapter 4, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now notice that Jesus was driven by the Holy Spirit towards temptation. Jesus did not seek it, but he obviously obeyed the impulse of the Holy Spirit being tempted for 40 days by the devil, and in those days he ate what? Absolutely nothing. And afterwards, when they had ended the 40 days, he was hungry, and so would you be. Nothing could sustain you than the Holy Spirit to get you through those 40 days without food. I have never been terribly good in diets, and I don't need to convince you, looking at me, although it's not so bad, I've lost some weight, 
40 days, no food. He was supernaturally sustained by the Spirit that possessed him. And then it says here, when they had finished, he was hungry. You might say he would have been absolutely starving. Would that be correct? Yes. And the devil said to him, now the devil is approaching him. There is one thing that comes through this temptation of our Lord in the wilderness. The devil has impeccable timing. He's got a lot of experience. He has impeccable timing. Now come to the Gospel of Mark, um, Matthew, also the fourth chapter. And we'll take it from there and probably stay there for a bit. And I'll read the same account in verse 1, chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, now this is when he comes, when, what shall I say, the glory of God has subsided. And in his full humanity, in his absolute humanity, he feels physically the result of the absence of sustaining food for the last 40 days. How would you feel? Weak, to say the least? Vulnerable? Absolutely. Whenever you would have gone without food for a long time, and that may not apply to many of us here, but if you have, the actual hunger, the desire for food can be overwhelming. Satan comes to him, and he has three forms of attack. There are three issues. By the way, this temptation is of a cosmic, of a cosmic dimension. You understand? In fact, let's have a look at who we are looking at here today. Come with me to Revelation 12, because these two know each other very well. If you come to Revelation chapter 12, and you go there, and I'll give you the verse, verse 7. And war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was there a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. What does the name Michael mean? We know who he is, but what does the name Michael, Michael, mean? Oh, very good. She's got a very good teacher, you see. Me is who. Ka means like. El is the singular form of Elohim. The verb is, is to be supplied in the Hebrew because it doesn't exist in the present tense. Who is like God? That is the name of the great controversy. Jesus, as the head of the angels, bears the name of the great controversy. Because what had Lucifer said in his mind? I shall be like the Most High. He wanted to be God. So here is the issue. 
who is God. Now, if you come to Luke again, the 10th chapter, I'll make you work a little bit because that'll keep you, I hope, awake. And I'll do my best as well. So, so you better do your best as well. And so it says here in verse 18 of the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 10, verse 18. And he, Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And we just read it in Revelation. Because he, as Michael, threw him out. Do you understand? Now what we have here is an apparent reversal of identities. Satan would have come to him as an angel of light. Overwhelmingly beautiful. Forget the cloven hoop, the horns and all the other things. There is Jesus, 40 days, in fact, the, the, the gospel writer said he was amongst the wild beasts. 40 days, no food. You think it's hot here? The Judean desert gets awfully hot. Now he's there for 40 days and he would have looked quite a sight. You wonder who might be on that very occasion the fallen angel. You could be forgiven if you reverse the roles, isn't it? And so we now see Satan having the tremendous advantage of his capacity, his appearance, and the one who has assumed humanity, fallen humanity, physically fallen humanity with all of its consequences, where the appetite, the passions, is inclined, are inclined to rule the mind. And Satan knows that. Whenever you ponder about the times that you fell, that you sinned, Satan would have attacked you on the passions, on the appetite in the broader sense. And how often he hasn't gained the victory. Now, of course, if that doesn't happen, then Satan has plenty in his arsenal and invariably the next way he tries to tempt you is the temptation to presumption. We're going to look at that. And we've all been guilty of it. I'll get away with it, God will forgive me. It won't matter that much, the consequence of your sin won't affect you. We often regret our sin because of the result, isn't it? Sin affects you negatively and others as well, by the way. Whilst we might lament our consequences of the sins we have committed, it is distinctively different from repentance. What is repentance? A sorrow for sin and a turning away. Okay. Presumption is the counterfeit of faith. Presumption claims the promises of God, but you wish to remain in your sin. That's the difference. That's the difference. Now, what we are dealing with here, if you come back with me again to Matthew chapter 4, maybe, maybe a little bit more. 
let's, let's look at the cosmic reality here. It couldn't get more cosmic than Revelation chapter 12. You know, a whole universe was looking in. This event was unobserved, and if it weren't for the sake of the gospel writers, we wouldn't even know about it. And yet, it had a significance that the whole plan of salvation might have failed. There's something you and I should understand. Question. Could Jesus have sinned? Well, give me a feedback. Yes? All yes? You're absolutely right. If he couldn't have, Satan would have never tempted him. He was fully human. He had divested himself from his divine power. He didn't know everything that was coming his way. There were times when he was surprised. There were times when he lived absolutely, absolutely by faith, and Calvary was the prime example of that. Um... Book of Job. Just to, let's get a background of the scene here. I think it's worthwhile. I'll just make you look it up from time to time here. Book of Job, just before the book of Psalms. And we go to the first chapter where you get a tremendous insight of the controversy that is occurring here. Now you all remember Genesis 3.15. For I shall put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You know that one? There Satan learned, though he had tempted the first two parents, he was not to hold sway at will. He obviously took over the dominion of Adam and Eve. That he did. And he assumed ownership of this planet. The one thing you must understand about Satan, he assumed ownership of this planet. This was going to be his headquarters. That's what he planned. And there's an issue here in the book of Job, if you have it, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, these are representatives of other worlds, by the way, the context bears that out, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came amongst them, and the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Did God know where Satan came from? Aha. In other words, who do you represent? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. This is an Hebraic idiomatic expression that he owned the world. That's where he walked, that was his territory. That's what he claimed. Now Satan had claimed that the law of God was too difficult for Adam. That's what he said. That is what he claimed. And so rightfully, the human race, the fallen human race, the fallen planet Earth, ought to be his dominion. Because their loyalty was given to him when they disobeyed God. Can you see the controversy here? Now, here God, by the way, the one that is speaking to Satan, is the same one that he visits thousands of years later in the Judean wilderness. The one who threw him out of heaven is the same person that he is now looking at in a very diminished state of almost desperate humanity. Famished, hungry, 
almost out counted out. Now it says here, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless, upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Right? Now you remember the story. You remember the wager. God knew the outcome, by the way. Job was ignorant to the fact. And Satan learned a lesson. There are such people as righteous people. He couldn't claim the whole of humanity. And if he couldn't claim the whole of humanity, he can't claim this earth at all. He can't. Now, of course, Job was not perfect. Though he seemed to be, if you come right at the end of the book of Job, there is a little statement that you should see. And it comes from the man himself, from Job himself. Chapter 30, 30, uh, 42, the very last chapter. Now God has answered Job, because Job has demanded an explanation. He has not been unloyal, disloyal to God, but he demands an explanation. Now it says here in verse 6, or verse 5, I have heard of you, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see, he now sees how majestic God is, therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He repented. Was Job a sinner? What was the sin of Job? Huh? Yeah, doubt. Any other thoughts? It was the sin of presumption. It was the sin of presumption. What was his presumption? You owe me an explanation. That's it. Ever felt like saying that to God? Oh, they say that all the time. If there is a God, and they believe in a God, if there is, why does he not do this or let this or that happen? Or why does it happen to me? Me. It's all right for somebody else. Why does it happen to me? Presumption. Oh, he knows exactly how to get to us. Now let's get back with that in mind. Let, uh, let's have a look again at chapter 4, Gospel of Matthew. Here is Jesus, fully human. The glory has departed of God. I mean, the Spirit is still in him. Don't worry. He has this connection with his Father through the agency of the Holy Spirit. But what becomes crystal clear here, and you must understand this, Jesus could have fallen, he could have sinned. But he didn't. In any way at all. Now the angel of light, who, if you look at the spirit of prophecy, pretended to be sent by the Father, addresses the Son who has no difficulty in picking out the fact that this angelic being here in front of him is none other than the enemy of souls. Now we read what Satan says, and then I want to hear from you, so you can stay involved with the, well, I would like to call it a lesson this morning, and see if you can pick it. 
It says here in verse 3, Now when the tempter came to him, to Jesus, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Would you have picked him? I love it. That's what I like to hear. The very first word. What is the first word? If the sound of the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son, were still ringing in the ears of Satan. It was the strength of Jesus. It sustained him. And even in his hunger, even when he is famished, he remains loyal to his Father. That word if. Oh, he's a sly one. He is, that is a covert negative. Do you remember how he started the temptation of man? He started with the woman. I won't say any more about it, I'm just saying he started with the woman. In chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, keep one hand here at the gospel there of Matthew. Now you come at Genesis 3. And look how he begins. Now the first verse, and the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. That word was is not a good translation. Haya Hebrew also means became. The serpent, I mean if you look at the end of verse chapter 1, then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was what? Nothing wrong with the serpent. No slyness about that at all. The Hebrew word arum here really means clever. Clever is related to the word nakedness. Arum and arum. Now what we have here is this. The serpent becomes crafty, cunning. It has a negative connotation. Why? Well, Satan possessed him. And as Satan possessed him, he became cunning. He became sly. He became crafty. Okay? Get the story here? That's the advantage of the language when you go to the original language. Now, And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You know what it says in the Hebrew? Has God indeed said that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? To which he reacts, doesn't he? That he has to react to because God has said, you can eat of any tree. And then he continues... One of his favorite weapons, and it was already given to us, doubt. Doubt. That's how he works. You doubt whether God is caring for you. You doubt whether God said what he meant. Or God meant what he said. Now you start doubting this book. The moment, the moment you start doubting this book, you have lost your anchor and you're on your own. And you are no match for Satan. That's really the core message this morning. There is only one way you successfully will fight him. There is one way and you can all do it. But none of us can do it by themselves. 
even if collectively we try to help each other and we should and encourage we still need help from above understand that? now what we have here he is trying to insinuate if what's the next thing that you might have picked up it's a bit harder a question why did Jesus know that this was not an angel from heaven sent by the Father? Any and all and every miracle that Jesus performed, <clears throat> and he did many, he did many tremendous miracles, how much of his own power did he ever employ? Did you get that? You see, he was fully human. And the power that he had as God, he had left in heaven. What he did do, what he did do, what he did do, he actually did through the power that came from above. And never for himself, always for others. Here is the second item of discovery that the father would have never sent an angel telling him to command in his own power there's one more I looked at it this morning again I think there's another one what did he suggest? what did he suggest? appealing to the appetite turn There is an assumption that God needs matter in order to be able to transform. That is at the root of theist evolutionism. Because God can create out of nothing. What is the first miracle that Jesus did do? Yeah, you always say that and you're right. Well, he used pre-existing matter, water, to turn it into wine, isn't it? But you know, there's an object lesson why he did that. What does the water in biblical symbolism mean? What does it stand for? And I'll give you a hint. Chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. The woman at the well. It is certainly, oh, to the Semitic mind, that was life. What is water symbolic of? The laver in the courtyard. The cleansing agent. Come on. The early rain, the latter rain. The Holy Spirit. Oh, that was like drawing, pulling teeth, that was. That was very slow force coming. <coughs> now, he turned the Holy Spirit, the water, into wine. What does wine stand for? That's one way. There's another one. What does intoxicating wine stand for? The harlot, she has a cup and she has intoxicating wine. What is it? Huh? Yes. Fantastic. False doctrine. So what is non-toxicating wine, pure wine, pure juice, 
non-fermented stands for? Pure doctrine. The Holy Spirit leads you into pure doctrine. Now, what we have here is the request or the suggestion by Satan. And the reply is magnificent. And here is the ultimate tool of self-defense. But he, verse 4, answered and said, what did he say? In my opinion, it is written. You see, that is the most significant statement. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, that comes from the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, you'll find it perhaps in a few places. You can look the references up yourself. As God, the one here who is being tempted, through Moses, had advised the children of Israel that that manna, which they had not known, nor their forefathers, it was a miracle every day, sustaining them the right food for the right moment. If only they would obey God, he'll supply the food. Now there's a text in the Bible somewhere, which Jesus quoted. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and what? The rest, your food and everything else shall be added unto you. That's the order. That is the absolute order. On a few occasions I've had people say to me, I'm going to get my business off the ground and when I have done well and God has blessed me and I've got all the money, I'll use it for the church and I'll go into the ministry. Wrong order. Their business has never got to that stage. Wrong order. You must first serve him with all your heart and all your mind. And the rest shall be added unto you. And if he will entrust you with a great deal of money and possessions and wealth, so be it. But you've got to get your order right. Isn't that true? Okay, let's have a look at the second attack. This one, he has failed now in this one. Now he tries the second one, which is the one of presumption. Verse 5, Then the devil took him into the holy city, that's Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, that was quite high, by the way, that was the highest point. At the very highest point, the physical reality is that Satan has, was granted the power to take him right up to the pinnacle. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now, who was going to throw who down? You still awake? Yeah. This, well, what I'm saying here, Jesus wasn't the only one tempted here. I think Satan would have been very tempted himself. But of course, he would not be allowed to do that, and he knew that. So he said to Jesus, you throw yourself down, prove it to me that you are the Son of God, prove it to me, and then what does he do? What does he do? He quotes scriptures. Now that's good. 
If someone quotes scripture, you'll be on the ball. You open your Bible, check the whole of the text to make sure that with the context that the exegesis, meaning the explanation of the text, is the correct one. Do you understand that? Come listening now to Psalm 91, but before we do, just read what he says. He shall give his angels charge over you, and look even at to keep you. Now we're going to have a look at the text proper. Psalm 91. Verse, I'll come to that in a minute. Psalm 91, have you got it? Verse 11. This is what he quotes. For he shall give his angels charge over you. Is that written? Oh yeah. Oh, verse 12, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. He says, now prove that you believe in what you say. It is written. But he left one bit out, didn't he? He left a bit out. Verse 11, for he shall give his angels charge over you to what? To keep you in all your ways. Now look at the opening verses of this psalm. What are your ways? He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God, in Him I will... And that's where he keeps you. If you read your Bible correctly, you don't need any proof. You walk by faith. You see, he left that out, didn't he? Satan is very good like that. There is nothing more dangerous than half-truth. And he fails. He fails here as well, because the reply that Jesus gave him, it is written, verse 7, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You'll find it in Exodus 17, you'll find that in Deuteronomy 16, repeated by Moses, when the children of Israel got into the desert, didn't take long, they were running out of water, and they were raising their voice against God, well, there is it. And they said to Moses, give his water. They were about to stone him. That's what an appetite can do. It can take over your reasoning, you understand. And he said, Moses, to the people, do not tempt God. And he repeated that in his farewell address in the 16th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. And that is what Jesus uses. You mustn't tempt God. You know, I'm almost out of time, but this happens in many ways. Let me give you an example. I, I used to, when I had, used to have exams, I used to pray, you know what I mean? You too? Yeah? Oh yes, you do, don't you? Right on the very day, right before you walk in, and you say to God, if I pass, I will whatever. Go to church regularly, read my Bible, pay, give more money, Heard of those things? We've all done that. What we say to God, you better come good, and then we come good as well. Wrong order again, isn't it? How often we play like this. We're really tempting God. 
Tempting God that he should prove himself before we serve him. It's the other way around, isn't it? God loves you, God cares for you, you're faithful to him. You think that God will ever cease to be faithful? Never. Never. You'll eat, don't worry, you'll eat. But you serve him and you stay true to the course. Let nothing, let nothing come between you and him. Now we go to the third temptation. And this is the most common one. If he can't get you on the first, if he can't get you on appetite or passion, if he can't get you on presumption because you know your Bible and you know what's written, then he'll try another way and it's the most successful one. I'll read it to you and then I'll ask you what you think it is. Verse 8. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. This was beyond time. This was beyond what the human eye could see. Satan can do many things and he put a panorama before him. You find it so well described in the book of Desire of Ages. Jesus saw the loveliness of the most beautiful buildings and nature, the whole world. And this is what Satan said. He said to him, verse 9, All these things I will give to you if... He's an if man, isn't he? All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What is he appealing on? And what makes him so successful with humans? Selfishness is very much at the root of it. You're so right. Greed. I don't mind that. I don't mind that. It's a good one. Anything else? Uh, oh, arrogance. We almost forgot about that. Yeah, very good. Anything else you can think of? Power. Good one. I like that. Yeah, what? Wealth. Ah. The love of the world. Oh, sister, you're so good. You should come to Fountain in the afternoon. <laughs> we could do with you. Did you get that? But you're right in everything that you said. You're right, you're spot on. All you have to do is have a good look in the mirror, right? Folks, you know, to be honest with self is a good exercise. And we all hate it, don't we? But you should do it. Now, the love of the world, if he can't get you to fall any other way, he'll do it through that means. So your affections, your affections, the degree of your affections are focused on what you have, what you are, what you possess. On you. That was Lucifer's fault. Mistake. It can creep up on you and I urge you to review in soul-searching, what or who can be another person? What or who has your greatest affection, gives you the most dictates in your life what you should or shouldn't do? And it's got to be Christ. If it isn't, you've got a problem, you've got an idol. Did you get that? you got an idol. And so... He tries here, of course, if Jesus would have done so, the controversy in heaven throwing him out, he would have had to apologize 
to the one who wanted to be like God because that's what he then more or less would become. You understand? Now, what we have here is this. He says, Away with you, verse 10, Satan, for it is written, he still speaks with Scripture, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And that's the message of this morning. It is only him that you must serve. You cannot have your affections. I'm not saying you shouldn't love those you love and maybe you should love a few more people as well. Try. But by the same token, it ought not to have your affections that it impedes on the written word and the instruction that God gives you. You understand that? You know you've got to give it all up, don't you? A friend of mine had a friend for many, many, many decades. I knew this man and he was a very wealthy man. He probably had about 20, 30 million to his name. He was the meanest thought you have ever seen. But a likeable chap at various times. And this particular guy, this particular guy was the meanest to all of his tenants, the most ruthless. And if you sit somewhere and you, you had some beverages, he made sure that you paid for yours and he paid for his. Now, last week, sitting in the casino at the roulette table, he dropped off his chair dead, massive heart attack, boom, gone, not even 60 yet. How many there are? How many there are? What is it all about, isn't it? Dreadful. You wouldn't even go to the funeral. I'm not. What are you going to say? The man is lost. The man is lost. You see, that's the tragedy. Now, the closing remark is in this. Then the devil, verse 11, left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Satan has to leave when you preserve or connect yourself with Christ and you quote and live by the word as it is written, he must leave. That's how you overcome. But the Gospel of Luke, and I want you to remember these last words, says this. See if I can find it in a hurry. Okay. Verse 13 of chapter 4. Gospel of Luke. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. And what are the closing words? What? Okay. You cling to Christ. Because Satan will be back. He'll be back. Okay? Don't you forget that. May God bless you. Shall we bow our heads? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for being our Father and that we, that we know that you're a loving and caring God. You truly are a Father to us. And we thank you for the gift of your Son who withstood all the temptations. Temptations that we, in our own power, couldn't hope to resist. We thank you for the ability of choice and I pray that the choices that we make on a day-to-day -day basis are those that you would have made. Help us to walk on the narrow path that leads home. Preserve us. Do what is necessary in our lives 
to obey and to have life to the full. We thank you for the truth as it comes to us in your word. We thank you for the wonderful, wonderful gifts that you have given us. We claim the promise that one day soon we shall see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was made available by the Wallara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit wallarachurch.org. That's Wallara, W-O-O-L-L-A-H-R-A, church.org. Journey on this narrow.
That was Diane Hope singing Walking With You, Jesus, from the album A New Song Collective. Carly Fletcher is now going to sing Lead Me to the Rock from the album No More Goodbyes. Where do I go when I've come to the end of myself When there is no one left to turn to, no place to hide And where do I go when I've come face to face with life? It seems there's no hope inside. But lift up your eyes, weary one. Lift up your eyes, weary one. Lead me to the rock. in him. 
Hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. The Adventist church was in its infancy with a membership that was only in the tens of thousands and yet it had already made ventures into the publishing work and the health work. Despite a small membership, it would soon move into the educational field as well with a vision far greater than the reality of church life at the time. A school had started in 1868 by Goodloe Harper Bell that was supported locally here in Battle Creek. But in 1872, James and Ellen White would call for the upgrading of this school into an advanced educational institution and also for the denomination to support the school. As guidance for the school, Ellen White wrote Testimony for the Church Number 22, where she developed the fundamental principle of the correlation between the physical, mental, moral, and religious aspects of education. The Bible was not to be just an elective option to study, but was to be infused throughout the whole curriculum, eliminating the classics as the main thrust. Initially, the teachers and administrators struggled to implement what they probably didn't fully understand themselves. As well as making the curriculum Bible-based, there was also the admonition to include a manual labor program. Education was to move away from the Latin and Greek classics and be holistic, focusing on character development and daily reminding the students of their obligation to God to live for Him and be a missionary wherever they were. The focus on manual labor and missionary work is reflected in the early names of these schools. The College of Medical Evangelists, Emmanuel Missionary College, Southern Missionary College, Australasian Missionary College, and Oakwood Industrial School. The purpose was for mission. The name of the school reflected the purpose of the church to train missionaries at home and abroad.
the vision to start a comprehensive educational system would mushroom and grow. Education is such a key evangelistic strategy. The places today where the church is stronger have a strong Adventist educational system that is valued and supported by the members. Education that recognizes it's not just for academic advancement, but that is also evangelistic and redemptive, echoing the words of Ellen White that education and redemption are one. The work of education now encompasses the globe with the largest Protestant school system, but our strength lies not in our size, but in our faithfulness to the original purpose of setting up the educational school system. Practical education with a clear mission focus was the primary motivating factor rather than just academic excellence. Many today do not have the opportunity of an Adventist education. If that is you, then may you be a witness in your school or university like the Waldensians in years gone by. Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Whether it's at Sabbath school, homeschool, or Adventist school, we see that education is vitally important in solidifying what we believe, as well as giving us the skills that we need in life. If you live near a school, then support it. Support the youth who are attending, whether it's financially, through your prayers, by volunteering, by working, or in whatever way that you can. view more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.